I have two very important uh, announcements before I actually begin my teaching. One, I want to thank you for the kind way you received my good friend Drew last weekend in his teaching on worry. And Drew gave you the chance to give an offering to the Lord of a worry that you wanted to turn over to him. And we got a sack this big. And I thank you for participating and being so honest. And while that big sack has been prayed over, I want you to know that in a couple of weeks, the elders are going to meet on Saturday morning. And they're going to take every single card and pray over it personally. And I hope in these next couple of weeks, you begin to feel the burden of worry lifted but I want to thank you for being transparent and honest to God about where you're really at and those worries are going to be prayed over now speaking of prayer the second thing uh, because of the changes in the building and Bible classes needing to be everywhere it's become increasingly difficult to send people to other parts of the building for prayer at the end of the service and one of the things we do at every service is offer the gift of prayer from church leaders so what we're going to start doing now in all three of our services is I'm going to have the prayer team in that particular service to come down just before the service is included. They'll stand here over on this side of the auditorium right at the front. And then when the service is concluded, uh, we just want you to come here instead of going somewhere else to meet with the people. And they will pray with you. If you need privacy, they'll take you somewhere a little more intimate. But they'll give you all the time that you need because we do feel like intercession is one of the most precious gifts we can offer anybody so we'll start that today and that will be our new tradition you will come down to the front after the service if you would like someone to pray with you today one of my favorite stories is of the two very rich very old men they were at this posh exclusive resort on the first tee about to play a round of golf when this attractive young woman in a bathing suit walks up to the first tee, kisses one of the old men, says, I'm going to go lay out by the pool and then I'll meet you back at the room when you're through playing. The other guy says to his friend, who was that, your granddaughter? He says, no, that's my wife. Your wife? How old is she? 27. And how old are you? 77. And how did you get her to marry you? He said, simple, I lied about my age. <laughs> His friend said, oh, you told her you were 57. He smiled and said, no, I told her I was 97. <laughs> now, Jesus actually told a similar story about another character one of these crazy characters that you can't decide at the start is good, bad, or ugly. The great thing about Jesus as a storyteller is that you always had to wait to the end because he was the master of surprise endings. And he's got a story kind of like that joke about a guy who is deceitful, but deceitful for a purpose. And Jesus doesn't endorse deceit, but he does approve of the creative cultivation of relationships. And I think that's the point of what I call the parable of the shrewd dude. It's in Luke chapter 16. Let's read it together. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. 
I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. It's interesting, the Pharisees couldn't stand what Jesus taught about sinners. He said that sinners were loved by God just as much as the righteous, and they needed to be welcomed, included, not excluded. They hated what he taught about sinners, but you need to know they also hated what he taught about money. They didn't love sinners, but they did love money. And they had come up with a theological framework that they could live within to justify their love of their money. And this is not uh, just an old problem. You can turn on the TV today and you can find preacher after preacher that will make you feel good about loving money. That will tell you that God wants you to love money and God wants you to have money. There are always people willing to baptize idolatry. There are always people that will tell you you can love and you can serve both God and money. You just have to learn how to multitask. Jesus, please notice, denies the possibility of dual devotion to God and money. I think we misunderstand Jesus. I think we think, he said, you should not serve both God and money. You ought not serve both God and money. Read it again. You cannot serve both God and money. Because Jesus understands what many of us don't. That money is not just some neutral medium of exchange. Money, he gave it a name, mammon. It's a rival God demanding allegiance. And any God worth anything will never take second place. Any God worth anything will never accept half-heart worship. He knew the Lord God could never be enthroned until the money God is dethroned. And this is why Jesus talks more about money than any other subject except the kingdom of God. Because he knows money is a test. That the location of your treasure is a window to the condition of your heart. And so he he talks about money 
all the time. Did you know one out of every six statements of Jesus is about money? And he's saying, you folks need to do some internal auditing. Why do you love money? Why do you want to serve God and money? Why do you want to baptize idolatry? They recently did a study of students at Harvard University, and they asked this question. They said, now assume prices are the same, so your buying power is the same. Would you rather make $50,000 a year, but everybody else makes $25,000? Or would you rather have twice as much money, $100,000 a year, but everybody else makes $200,000? Almost without exception, they said, we'd rather make fifty. We'd rather make half as much money if it's more than other people. Because it's not just about how much we can buy. It's about how we find our identity. It's about how we conclude what we're worth. It's how we keep score. And Jesus is saying over and over, don't keep score that way. Don't ever define your self-worth by your net worth. Don't ever let your bank account decide who you are. And so over one-third of Jesus' stories are about money. And the craziest one is the parable of the shrewd dude. We don't preach on it much because we don't exactly know what to do with it. He was a steward. Now, this was a common thing back in those days. Masters owned land and they'd own livestock and they'd own vineyards and crops. And they would hire a steward to manage because typically the master wasn't an educated person. Often he wasn't literate. Often the smartest, wisest, most educated person on the property was the manager. And he knew everything. Now, this particular manager wasn't very good at his job. I don't know that he was dishonest because it says... He was going to be fired, not arrested. He just wasn't good at his job. The word wasted is the same word used back in Luke 15 of the prodigal son that wasted the dad's money off in the far country. He's just bad at his job and he's going to get fired. And he knows he's about to get fired. And the manager uh, says, or the, the master says, I need you to get the books in order. I need you to get everything in order so we can hire a new manager and he knows where I stand. Now, this guy's got a dilemma. He's not strong enough for manual labor. He's too ashamed to beg, but he's not too ashamed to steal. So he comes up with a plan, a rather ingenious plan. Quickly, before all the people that owe the master know he's about to get fired, he goes to them. Because he's the only one that really knows how much they owe. And he cuts a deal with every one of them so that they have to pay less. He tears up the old note, he creates a new note. And so now, not only are they in debt to him, but he's in a position for some rather judicious blackmail. If it ever comes to it, they're going to be eager to help him out when he needs a favor and loses his job. Well, of course, at some point, the master is going to find out what's happened. Now, again, what made Jesus so brilliant is the way he would have those never-saw-it-coming moments in his stories. Like, remember the Good Samaritan? The priest goes by with the side. Levite goes by the other side. You just know the next guy's going to be just an everyday, ordinary Jew. You weren't thinking Samaritan. You didn't see that coming. We're going to see uh, in October when we study the, the prodigal son, he has not one. He's got two surprise endings in that story. And so he tells the story, and the, the steward gets caught, and the master knows he's been cutting deals under the table. 
And so you just know what he's going to say next. And so the master had the steward thrown out into outer darkness where there was wailing and gnashing of teeth. No. The master pats the guy on the back and says, You are one shrewd dude. And Jesus says, Be more like that. What? He's not commending his dishonesty. He's commending his astuteness. This steward knew, I've got a little bit of time, and I've got a little bit of stuff, and that gives me a little bit of influence, and I'm going to use it. And so he impacted his future by the way he impacted people. And Jesus says, look at verse 8 again. Why is it the people of this world look out for themselves better than the people who belong to the light? Why do the people of God who know they will give an accounting someday for the way they have managed what the master has entrusted to them, why do they live like they've totally forgotten that day's coming? Why is it that pagans, motivated by greed, give more thought to how to manage their money than Christians do who ought to be motivated by grace? Jesus says, do some internal auditing, folks. What's going on here? And please notice, he doesn't say, now the way to deal with the money, God, is just to get rid of all your money. Instead, he says, I want you to think. I want you to plan. I want you to invest. I want you to deliberately use money for kingdom purposes. Because money is a wonderful tool when it's in the hands of a man or a woman that is totally surrendered to God. I think this story has two main points. Here's the first. Because money is a tool that can make a difference for the future. Be intentional. Because you have noticed that when people are obsessed with a goal, particularly a relational goal, your kids need braces. They want to play on a select team or go to a college. Your wife needs a special surgery. When you have a goal, particularly a relational goal, it is amazing how determined and creative we can get to finance it. One of my favorite preachers, a man named John Ortberg, he tells this true story that he was engaged. Now, he was in school in California at seminary, had a lot of school debt, working just part-time at a Baptist church, had very little money. The woman to whom he was engaged had previously dated a man who had just signed a $1 million contract to play in the NBA. So he's feeling some pressure. And he wants to to be able to go on a nice honeymoon. But he's got no money. So he gets creative. He does what everybody in California does when they want money. He got on a game show. Do you remember that old show called Tic-Tac-Doe with Wink Markin Well, he got on that show. 
And he's doing really well. He's up against this guy that's won a bunch of games and a bunch of money. But he's a smart guy, too. And they, they tied several games. They got down to the end of the show. And the guy he was against finally missed a question. If John gets the next question right, he is going to win more money than he's ever seen in his life. And they are going to have the honeymoon of their dreams. So he's hoping for a topic like, I don't know, maybe the Bible. True story. You know what topic he got for his big question? Mixed drinks. <laughs> and his question was, what is the drink that's made by two shots of scotch and half shot of sweet vermouth? And he's on national TV and he says, wink. He says, I'm also a Baptist pastor. I'm in trouble if I get this right and I'm in trouble if I get it wrong. Well, he didn't know when he lost the money. By the way, who does know what kind of drink that is? Because if you know, you're the reason we created this prayer team that's going to meet right down here at the end of the service, okay? I'm just kidding. Maybe. Anyway, here's the point. When you are really obsessed particularly when it comes to relational goals. Folks, you are intentional. The steward in this story doesn't just go into drift mode, okay? He forms a concrete plan, and he executes it with all diligence. He knew his money wouldn't last, but relationships would. And so he intentionally converted the one into the other. Now listen to me, friend. You are not going to drift into responsible stewardship. The kind of life that Rick wants you to have, the kind of life that God wants you to have, you're not going to stumble on it. You're going to have to pursue it. That's why we do offer things like crown studies and financial peace, university and budget counseling, and we encourage you to use those tools. I'm not saying that we can buy heaven or that we can buy off God. The only thing that can ransom a sinner is the blood of Christ. But I think Jesus is saying, you ought to be living intentionally now in light of then. Deliberately prepare to give an account of how you managed all the blessings God poured into your life. That word shrewd, by the way, is the same word Jesus uses every time he talks about his coming back. And he says, be watchful and be ready. It's the word shrewd. And so the first thing we learn from this story is, folks, God has given you blessings. Be intentional about your stewardship of them. Second, be missional. Manage your resources in a way that's appropriate for people who say they've sold out to the kingdom of God. And in God's kingdom, what matters most is people. Look again at verse 9. I tell you, use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Notice Jesus does not preach on stewardship by inducing guilt. He instead preaches on stewardship by producing a vision of the future we all want. He says, do this so that you will be welcomed into heavenly dwellings, eternal 
dwellings. Jesus says, live your life in such a way so that when you get to heaven, people are going to cheer when you get there. And not out of shock. Okay? You're going to get to heaven and they're going to shout, Dude! I've been wanting to meet you. I came to Christ because you helped support that missionary in Africa. I read the Bible for the first time because you helped fund the people that sent it to me. I went to Mullendore School and you're the people that helped me get my school supplies every day. And that tutor that came over told me about Jesus. You want to live your life so that when you get to heaven, there are people all over shouting, Dude, dude, we've been waiting. Thank you for making friends with all your blessings. The world uses people to get more money. We're supposed to be using money to get more people. We don't define friend as the person that could do something for us. But friend's the person we can do something for. Many of you may not know there's a small church out in West Texas that literally was founded, inspired by our church. And they get our DVDs and they listen to me and Jonathan preach every week. And they meet in a rented room in the middle of their little town. They've had a great influence on their city. But the place where they were meeting had some water damage and they contracted with an older man to fix the roof. Well, they felt like he wasn't working fast enough or maybe hard enough. And, and another storm came through and did even worse damage. And they were frustrated. If this man had done his work, we wouldn't have this problem. And, and they were meeting and, and talking about it. And some were even expressing some frustration about it. One of the women said, you know, I, I talked with him. And one of his problems is he doesn't have any reliable transportation. And then another woman in the church said, God's just put something on my heart. You're going to think I'm crazy. I think we're supposed to buy him a truck. And the more they thought and the more they prayed, the more they realized that's what they were supposed to do. So they put together a little group, $3,500, and they bought this 76-year-old man a reliable truck. I think I've got a picture of it even. That's Tommy in his new truck. And in the next picture, you'll see just some of this group. They call themselves Grace Point Fellowship. And you know what Tommy said? 76 years old, he said, it's the nicest thing anybody's ever done for me. This is what the Bible says. Use worldly wealth to make friends. They say that we've inspired them, but frankly, they've kind of inspired me. You see, the question is never, how much of my money should I use for God? The question's always been, how much of God's money should we use for ourselves? Because you need to know something. You say, well, how much of my money belongs to God? Friend, when you got baptized, all of it belongs to God, okay? It all belongs to Him. And Jesus says, your management of God's resources is now Christianity 101 in your education as a disciple. Look at verse 11 again. If you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, Who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? You see, if the wealth of heaven is true, that means the wealth of the earth is not true. And it's not true. Let's face it. You know why it's not true? Number one, it can't last. Let's face it. 
stocks are always going down or something's crashing or a thief's breaking in and stealing or it's going to rust. It doesn't last. Number two, it doesn't satisfy. Just read Ecclesiastes. I don't care how much you have. It doesn't mean you'll sleep well at night. Most of all, it can't stop you from dying. And then I don't mean to be rude, but folks, who cares? I mean, two generations after we're dead, not five people are going to know we lived. Who cares how big your house is or how new your car is? What's going to matter is, at that point, did you have anything in your spiritual portfolio? That's what Jesus is saying. Money's a trust. So get some eternal wealth. You can't take this stuff with you, but you can live so that you're sending it on ahead. Say, how do I increase my spiritual portfolio? Here's some things you can do. Every time you offer genuine, sincere worship to God, you've put treasure in heaven. Every time you deliberately work on your character to be more Christ-like, you're putting treasure in heaven. Every act of compassion, every time you serve in Jesus' name, every time you make a material sacrifice to advance the kingdom of God, your bank account in heaven grows. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and should give happily to those in need, always being ready to share with others whatever God has given them. And by doing this, they will be storing up real treasure for themselves in heaven. It is the only safe investment for eternity. You see, a shrewd dude will lose what he cannot keep. To gain what he cannot lose. And so one more true story. Their names are Ken and C.J. Mansfield. In 2002 they lived in just north of San Francisco. Where they ran a store in a deli. And they had a frequent customer. Well not really a customer. His name was Garland. He never bought anything. Garland was homeless. He slept in a park nearby. And they would often give Garland food just to make sure he was having something to eat. And he became their friend. In fact, one time the police saw Garland with this big basket that they thought he had stolen from their store. So they brought him to the store. And to keep him from being embarrassed, Ken and CJ said, Oh, no, no. In fact, Garland, thanks for bringing it back. We meant to put some more things in it. And then he just made up a number and opened the cash register and said, Oh, and here, Garland, is the change I forgot to give you. And just gave him $38.67. And the police let Garland go. A few days later, Garland died. And sometime after that, Ken and CJ get this call. This devoted Christian couple are shocked that this lawyer says, Garland left everything he owned to you. It was all in this bag. It was a sack of bird seed, a Bible, and a bank book with the names of Ken and C.J. Mansfield on it. The last deposit was $38.67, bringing the total somewhere over about $3 million. You say, well, nothing like that's ever happened to me when I've been kind to people. Friend, that's nothing compared. To what God has in store for you. That is nothing compared. 
to the reward God has prepared for those who have managed well. So live now in light of then. Because when you stand before the Lord God, you want Jesus to smile. You don't want Him to say, Dud. You want Him to say, Dude. We've been waiting for you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would prepare hearts to receive this teaching today. I don't think anybody here is going to disagree with anything I said. But, Father, we live in a world so materialistic. We've taught our hearts to protect themselves from this kind of sermon. Without even knowing it, Father, we've built sometimes walls around our hearts so that teachings like this just kind of bounce off and never penetrate. I pray today will be different. Today some hearts will get pricked and penetrated. By the clear counsel of Jesus to value eternal riches over worldly wealth. Father, deliver us from the temptation to define who we are by what we're worth or where we live or what we drive. Give us a greater vision of the kingdom how it defines who we are and how it becomes the future that's already invading the now give us ears to hear today God Because for too long the wax has kept Jesus' words on this subject out. And I already, Father, in advance give you thanks for all the people, even this week, who are going to become our friends because of the way that we manage your resources. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to sing a song to help us just imagine the day when we are before the throne of God. And as we worship together, if you are ready today to give your heart and life to Christ, if you're ready for that powerful sermon we call baptism that acts out the death and resurrection of Jesus, this is a good time to come right now and confess that faith while we stand in worship.